Exodus 8. The Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed, into your houses of, the ser- of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, in your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, on your people, on all your servants. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying when I shall intercede for you, for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and from your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow... And he said, let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you and from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land, so that it may become lice, throughout all the land of Egypt. And they did so. For Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and struck the dust of the earth, and it became lice on man and beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Now the magicians so worked with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice on men and beasts, and then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, just as the Lord had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. Or else I will, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms. Your Bible may say swarms of flies, but that is implied. What it literally says is I will send swarms on you and your servants, on your people, and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms, and also the ground on which they stand. And in the day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, 
that no swarms shall be there in order that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. And I will make a difference between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall be. And the Lord did so. Thick swarms came into the house of Pharaoh, into his servants' houses, and into all the land of Egypt. The land was corrupted because of the swarms. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God in the land. And Moses said, It is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord our God. If we sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians before their eyes, then they will, not, will they not stone us? We will go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God, and he will command us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Then Moses said, Indeed, I am going out from you, and I will entreat the Lord. I will entreat the Lord that the swarms may depart tomorrow from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the, his people. But let Pharaoh not deal deceitfully any more in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses let out, went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. He removed the swarms from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart at this time also, neither would he let the people go. Father in heaven, we ask that you would, Lord, by the power of your spirit, open our hearts and minds, illuminate this word, illuminate your gospel to us, that it would change and transform us. God, that you would keep your promise to conform us to the very image of the Son of glory. We ask this, Father, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me just talk a little bit about this chapter before I get into um, my notes. And I want to I kind of take you through and point some things out. So when we get to chapter 8 here, we are on our second plague. Remember, there are 10 plagues that God brings upon Egypt. The first one was recorded for us in chapter 7. It was when God sent Moses and Aaron, and they went to the Nile River, and they caused all the waters of Egypt to turn to blood. That was the first plague. What we're going to find as we go through this, you're going to see that there is a correlation between the plagues that God brings upon Egypt and the gods that Egypt worships. So this is a judgment upon Egypt. God is bringing this judgment because he wants to bring the deliverance of his people, but God is also judging this nation. And it's not accidental that God brings about the judgments that he does upon this nation. So the first plague was turning the waters of the Nile and all the waters of Egypt into blood. The second is what we find here in chapter 8. The first, uh, the first plague recorded in chapter 8 is actually the second of the ten plagues, and it is frogs. Now, you might, it almost may seem comical to, to us to think that God is going to plague a nation with frogs. 
I mean, it really kind of sounds like a bad, you know, horror movie or something. But there is a significance here because the frog was sacred to the Egyptian. Egyptians actually worshipped frogs. So it was, it was forbidden to kill a frog because they were considered sacred. And God sends frogs. He didn't just send a few frogs. As you read this, as we hear this account of God sending frogs, you need to understand that there were frogs upon frogs upon frogs, that you couldn't walk without stepping on not a frog, but you couldn't walk without stepping on frogs that were covering literally the ground. You couldn't sleep in your bed without laying on frogs. You could not cook because your ovens were full of frogs. You couldn't knead dough because your kneading troughs were filled with frogs. There was no place you could go in your life to escape the frogs because they were everywhere. And every time you took a step, you were squashing those frogs, which meant that you were killing the very thing that you were to hold sacred and protect. And there was not anything you could do about it. Now think about this. This frog, this god that the Egyptians worshipped, was not even powerful enough to save himself. He couldn't even keep himself from being trampled on and killed because everywhere every Egyptian went, he, he, there were frogs everywhere. So it wasn't just an inconvenience. It wasn't just gross. This was, this was not good. This caused not just a physical but this called, caused an emotional and a spiritual desperation on the part of the Egyptians. Then Pharaoh says, I repent, get rid of the frogs. Says the frogs died out and they piled them up in heaps. Heaps. And the land stank. Can you imagine? You can't. And Pharaoh then goes back on his word. Now the first plague, turning the water to blood, God warned Pharaoh. The second plague, bringing the frogs, God warned Pharaoh. What we're going to find as we go through these plagues, every third plague leading up to the final plague of the death of the firstborn son, every third plague was, was brought without warning because Pharaoh would not keep his word. And so God didn't warn Pharaoh that he was going to bring What's recorded for us in verse 16, So the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your rod and strike the dust of the land so that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. That word lice there, it's translated lice, but to be honest with you, the original Hebrew word, that's the only place that that word is used except for in the Psalms when the psalmist is recording what God did in Egypt. 
It's a word that we translate lice, but we don't really know exactly what it was. Some people believe that it, it's a word that's also translated gnat, which is also can imply a mosquito. It could have been very likely, it could have been mosquitoes. Now, the Egyptians worshipped the river. They worshipped frogs. And then God just brought these bugs whether they were lice or mosquitoes, it doesn't really matter. The effect was the same. It said that, now, back in, back in Pharaoh's day, in Moses' day, they didn't have, they didn't have big hydroelectric electric dams damming up rivers controlling the floodwaters. So this was a cycle that happened every year. Every year the rains would come and every year the Nile River would swell out of its banks and, and that actually became a, a feast. I mean, it actually became a, a point of worship when the river would begin to go back into its banks. It was, it was a holy time in, in Egypt. But along with all of these waters, if you can imagine, now you have, you have pools of water everywhere. You've got mud everywhere. And whatever this bug was, lice, mosquitoes, they multiplied. And it said that the mosquitoes would be so bad in Egypt that they would, they would literally drive even the livestock mad because they could become so overwhelming and so thick they would just go up into the nostrils and into the orifices of even the animals and the animals that lived outside would be driven mad by because they couldn't escape them now that was not that was something that could happen just as a freak of nature we didn't need God adding his power and his might to that. So you take what, what happened in nature, not infrequently. This is recorded in history for us. That mosquitoes have been a problem in Egypt and along the Nile River since it existed. And since mosquitoes existed. So whether it's lice or gnats or mosquito, whatever this bug was... God multiplied it as the dust. Now, now think of this picture. God had Aaron take dust and he turned dust into these insects that then multiplied and became so thick and so prevalent that we can't even imagine what's happening here. And in verse 19, the magicians of Egypt try to replicate this, but they can't do it. They can't do it. And they said, this is the finger of a God. In other words, this isn't Moses. Moses isn't a, just a great illusionist who's making us think he's doing this. The magicians who were illusionists themselves, they had no true power. The magicians of Egypt says, we, we can't do this. This is something 
beyond man's power, beyond man's capability. This is the finger of God. But it says once again, Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed the words of the Lord. And then Moses is commanded by God to go out the next morning. Remember, Pharaoh would go out to the river every morning. He would go out to the water. It was an act of worship because he venerated and worshipped the river and the God of the river. But he also remember go out there because he believed he was a God. And, and so he'd go out every morning to the river, and this is where God would send Moses to meet Pharaoh, which has all sorts of implications because Moses is just getting right into the face of Pharaoh. I mean, he's like right in his business, and God is putting Moses in this place to let Pharaoh know that you are not God. You do not control Egypt. You don't control this river. You don't control the frogs. You don't control the insects. You don't control anything. You are not God. I am God. And God is speaking to Pharaoh through Moses. Remember, God tells Moses, he said, when you go to Pharaoh, he said, you are going to be as God to him. And God says, I'll talk to you. You tell Aaron what to do, and, and then you, you watch and see what I do. But, but you will be as God to Pharaoh. So God didn't appear to Pharaoh. God spoke to Pharaoh through Moses. And God is sending a very clear message here. And so he goes out in the morning. He comes to Pharaoh. He's at the river. And God, again, through Moses, verse 20, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh as he comes out to the water, then say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms. My New King James says swarms of flies. I've got a, the Stone Talmud, which is the first five books of the Bible with commentary from the rabbis. The rabbis believe, some of them, that it was swarms of all kinds of insects like scorpions and creeping things and crawling things like snakes and scorpions and all the things that really disturb you. And again, this was to the level that whatever, whatever these swarms were, even some believe it might have been wild beasts, that, that it was so prevalent that you couldn't go anywhere. They would come up out of the ground. What's interesting, though, is there are some who believe that it was a certain beetle that exists in Egypt. Now, what's interesting about this beetle is like the Nile River and like the frogs, this beetle was an object of worship. So if you, you go and you watch movies, you know, like The Mummy or any of those, you'll, you'll see, 
you'll see emblems. They'll wear jewelry that depict these beetles. This beetle was sacred. And this beetle wasn't just a harmless beetle. This beetle would, it would eat things and destroy things. It would eat plant. It would eat leather. It would, it would chew on your furniture. It would bite you. It would gnaw on you. They were, they were unpleasant. You read some of the history of Egypt and archaeologists and people who worked there, and, and they talk about this beetle being this scourge. Now, we don't know what the swarms, it says God would bring swarms, but there are some who believe that it's very possible that it was swarms of this particular beetle. It's very possible because this beetle, again, was an object of worship. So now, let's just, let's just think about whatever it was, but it was unpleasant. It was harmful. It was disturbing. But if it is this beetle, again, here is this idol, this thing that the Egyptians hold and as sacred and they worship. Now God has sent it to such a level that you can't walk without stepping on these beetles and these beetles that are supposed to be something you pray to and, and, and get blessing from. Now they're, they're eating you, they're eating your food, they're eating your crops, they're gnawing on your furniture, they're destroying, they're literally bringing destruction to the land of Egypt. And God says in verse 21, He says, I'm going to bring these swarms that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the land. I'm the Lord in the midst of the waters. I'm the Lord in the midst of... I, I, I can turn dust into insects. I can turn water into blood. I control the land. I control everything. I am the Lord God Almighty. But now when we get to this, this third plague, whether it's flies or beetles or swarms of deadly insects, whatever it is, God says in verse 23, I want you to see this, I will make a difference between my people and your people. So the Lord brought thick swarms, and he brought them everywhere. They were in everything, on everything. They covered everything in Egypt. But God says, I will make a difference between my people and your people. This is what God told Pharaoh. And Pharaoh is so disturbed, he says to Moses, he calls for Moses, he says, go sacrifice to your God in the land. Verse 26, and Moses said, it is not right to do so, for we would be sacrificing the abomination of the Egyptians. Or, here's how we understand this, we would be sacrificing the idol of the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped sheep. What were the Israelites going to offer to God? They were going to offer animal sacrifices. They were going to sacrifice sheep to the Lord. Pharaoh says, go get your people and go offer your sacrifices in the land of Egypt here, in your land. 
Moses said, we can't do that. If we start sacrificing sheep, that's an abomination. The Egyptians will stone us. They'll, they'll, they won't stand for it. And Moses says, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, Pharaoh says, oh, yeah, you're right. They wouldn't go for that. Moses says, we'll go three days' journey into the wilderness and we'll sacrifice to the Lord as he has commanded us. Pharaoh says, I will let you go and sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far away. Intercede for me. Make these swarms go away. And Moses interceded. The swarms left, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. Here's what I want to draw your attention to. It's really what God says in verse 23. I will make a difference between your people and my people. And what's important there is that we understand that we are not the ones that make a difference. God is the one that makes a difference. It's God who makes a difference between his people and the world. And it is the grace of God that makes that difference. God has called us his people. He's called us to be different than the world. He distinguishes us so that we can be known as different than the world. And that different is most notable in the way that God deals with his children as opposed to the way that he deals with the world. This is demonstrated in explicit ways in Egypt. When we read the account in Exodus of how God dealt with Egypt and how he dealt with the children of Israel, we see in explicit ways that God makes a difference between his people and everyone else. God declared, I will make a difference between your people and my people. It's not the difference between peoples. Now that's what we're tempted to think. Well, the Israelites were better people than the Egyptians. The Egyptians worshipped frogs and beetles and rivers and ugh. They were, they were just, they loved cats. They were just weird people. I actually, I love cats too. I have one. But a lot of people don't. It wasn't the difference between Egyptians and Israelites. That's not the point. When God says, I will make a difference. It's not the difference between peoples. It's the difference between God and all people. God is other than us. If you've ever read the Not I, But Christ book, you've ever been through the study, we talk about this, that God is other than we are. Christ is other than us. That's our problem. We are trying to have a relationship with someone that is other than we are, and, and we can't do it. God is other than everything and everyone. There is no one, there is nothing like him. He is other than anyone and anything else. He is God. He is the great I am. Tell them I am. This is God. God calls us to repentance. He judges our idolatry. He reveals the difference between lifeless, powerless idols and himself. This is what he's doing in Egypt. 
But he's not just doing it for the Egyptians. He's doing it for his people. He's showing his people there is a difference, not only a difference between the God or the gods of the Egyptians and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but there is a difference that God has made between his people and everyone else, and it has nothing to do with our ethnicity. He reveals the difference between his people. It is his grace that makes the clear difference between his children and the world. When Israel left Egypt, they left a mixed multitude. That means it wasn't just Israelites who left Egypt, but there were Egyptians that left with them. Why? How is that possible? Well, Jesus tells us how it's possible in John 3.16. God so loved the world. God so loved the Jews and the Gentiles. God so loved every race of people. God so loved everyone in the world that He sent His Son to die for everyone. That whoever would believe in Him, whether you're an Egyptian or an Israelite, you would have everlasting life. God makes the difference. We don't make the difference. God does. And God reveals that idolatry is futility. Now, we don't consider ourselves idolaters today. We probably don't have, though I did go into a place of business last week to deliver something to them that they requested of me. And uh, I deal with this business quite frequently. And I did, I walked in, and I noticed the proprietor of the business had his little little idol thing set up there on the mantle behind him. I recognized it right away. Now, you and I might not have little statues or little altars set up in our homes that we bow to and worship to. I have lots of crosses on my wall. I've got pictures related to Scripture and all of that. Some people might consider that idolatry. I don't. But we are just as idolatrous as the Egyptians were, and just in different ways. God can create a plague from the very things that we idolize to reveal Himself and to reveal our desperate need for His grace. No idol can save us. No idol can give to us what we truly need even if it can, for a moment, give to us what we lust after. We do that. We idolize all sorts of things, and we go after those things, and we get temporary relief. But it's not really supplying what we truly need. Only God can do that. Only God can supply what we truly need and what we will truly desire when He gives us a new heart. This is why we have to have a new heart. God's not interested in just changing our minds. Remember when I said that God is other than we are? You can't just change your mind and now become acceptable to God because you are the wrong thing. I am the wrong thing. I must be fundamentally changed or 
to quote the one who said it best, you must be born again. And that's exactly what Jesus was saying. You can't just change your behavior. You can't just change your way of thinking. You can't just change what you're worshiping. That's not the problem. You're the problem. You're the wrong thing. And the only way you can become acceptable, the only way you even have hope of seeing the kingdom is to become something totally different. And you don't have the power, and I don't have the power to do that. Only God can do that. You can't take the dust and turn it into life, but God can the magicians of Egypt could take the dust. They couldn't create lice from the dust. This is why the evolutionists will never, ever, ever be able to create life from not life. Only God can do that. They can play with it. They can pontificate about it. They can theorize about it. But they'll never, ever be able to do it because it is beyond man's ability and we've seen that it's not just in our modern day that we've tried to do these things the wisest men in egypt tried to take dust and turn it into a swarm of insects and they couldn't do it and they said this is the finger of god you can't change yourself into that species of being that will suddenly become acceptable to god only god can do that. Only God can cause you to be born again. Only God can supply His grace that makes the difference. The, the idolatry of the Egyptians is easy for us to see. The Nile River, frogs, beetles, sheep, all kinds of other animals and objects that they worshipped, and what we could call silly superstition. But if we are honest with ourselves, we are no less idolatrous than those Egyptians of the past or of the present, I don't know. Our idols may or may not be as visible, but they are no less real. Some people say the Jews and the Muslims and the Christians all worship the same God. No, they do not. I'll go halfway with you when you talk about the Jews. They just haven't gotten all the way there yet. They're still waiting for a Messiah, but the God they worship has already sent the Messiah. They've rejected their Messiah, therefore they've rejected their God. The Muslims are on a whole different plane. They're not even in the same book even though they use the Old Testament. They're, they're... It's idolatry. So idolatry in Islam is strictly forbidden. But anything we worship, any God we name, any God we identify with, whether we think He or she is the true and living God, any God other than the God of this holy Bible, any God other than the God that has revealed himself to us through his word and in his creation, anyone, anything else we worship causes us to become idolaters. But we can worship things that don't even 
appear to be acts of worship, right? I mean, we can pursue things in life. We can pursue our work, our careers, our recreation. We can make people idols. We can make things idols. We can, we can make an idol out of anything. And as God did in Egypt, God can take the very things we idolize to reveal how futile and how powerless those things really are to supply to us what we ultimately need. They are incapable of producing the blessing we seek. They are ultimately powerless, and they will ultimately bring us misery, and the result will be our destruction if we do not experience God's grace. It is God's grace that reveals the futility of our idolatry. The judgment of our idolatry will ultimately result in our destruction or it will result in our salvation. God judged idolatry in Egypt. For many, it resulted in their destruction. For many, it resulted in salvation. And that was true, not just for Egyptians, that was true for the children of Israel. Because we're going to see as we go through Exodus that you had a whole generation that died in the wilderness because they were idolatrous. Now, they weren't worshiping frogs or beetles, but they were not trusting in God who had demonstrated His power and His deliverance. And they longed to go back to Egypt Well, they didn't get to go back to Egypt, but they didn't get to go into the promised land either. The difference is not determined by us. It is determined by God. It is God's grace that makes a difference between His people and all others. Idolatry is futility. Humanity is sinful. As we read this story in the Exodus, we ask this question, who are we in this story? And we should do that when we read the Bible. Who, who am I in this story? Who is Jesus? Where's the gospel? We ask this question, who are we in the story? The answer is that we are both Egyptians and Israelites. Humanity is represented both in Egypt and in Israel. We are oppressors and we are oppressed. We consistently practice idolatry and we inconsistently worship the true and living God. We seek relief, and then we forget the one who supplies it. This is true, not just for Pharaoh or Egyptians. This is true for humanity. This is the condition of sinful man. We see this in the parable that Jesus gave in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. You can read it later. It's the parable where the guy goes in to the judge, and he's owes this great debt, and he says, oh, please, please, I don't have the money. I've got a wife. I've got children. Please don't throw me into debtor's prison. Please have mercy on me. And the judge had compassion on the guy, and he forgave the entire debt. And the guy who just had his huge debt forgiven goes out and encounters a fellow servant who owed him just a little bit, and he beats the guy down, and he says, pay me now. And the guy goes, I I don't have it. 
and he has him thrown into prison until the debt is paid. And those servants went back in and they told that judge, say, hey, you know that guy that you just pardoned, that guy you just forgave his great debt? Man, he just was merciless to this guy who just, just owed him a little bit. He who has forgiven much should be able to forgive. But this guy was unable to forgive even a little. This is, this is our humanity. This is who we are apart from the grace of God. And if you don't think God doesn't pour his grace out on every living creature, you need to think again. Every breath the atheist breathes is God's grace. Every ounce of blood the heart of an atheist pumps through his body is a gift of God's grace. Every ray of sunshine, every drop of rain, every blade of grass, everything we take in every day constantly that we don't consider grace. It's grace. The very life that we have is God's grace. Whether you recognize it or not, it doesn't change the reality of what it is. It is the grace of God. But humanity and its sinfulness, apart from God's saving grace, is prone to forget, is prone to ignore, is prone to seek relief, but when we get relief, then we forget the one who supplied it for us. And we go back to whatever it was we came from. Jesus has provided for the debt that we could not pay, not because we were deserving, not because we were Israelites and not Egyptians, but because he is grace-filled, because he is good. The grace that Jesus gave to us in saving us has nothing to do with what we deserve. It has everything to do with who he is, because God is the one that makes a difference between his people and everyone else. We are all sinners in need of a Savior. We are all helpless in ourselves. We are all desperately in need of his grace. All humanity is sinful. Grace is given not because we are Israelites or Egyptians, but because he is God and he chose to make a difference by his grace. It is said that Pharaoh represents the God of this world. You often hear this. Pharaoh represents the devil. And no, listen, Pharaoh represents all of us. Pharaoh represents more than that, he represents all of us apart from God's grace. Pharaoh represents each of us who seek to rule upon the throne of our own heart and have life according to our own terms while seeking the blessing of the gods we pay homage to in order to secure what we want. Pharaoh paid homage to his gods to get what he wanted. He wanted power, he wanted control. We do the very same things. We just get it and go after it at different levels. Pharaoh ruled an empire. His was bigger, more powerful, more wealthy, 
But we all rule an empire until we abdicate our throne and give it to God. Or, I could say it like this, until God in His grace kicks us off our throne and places Himself there. Because that's what really happens. Because none of us willingly give up our thrones. But when we are crucified with Christ, when it's no longer us who lives, that's when God puts a new heart with new desires into us. That's when we can say, I choose to worship God. I choose to love God. I choose to serve God. I choose to trust Him. Because something happened God took my heart that was stone cold, hardened, and dead, and he transformed it into a living heart that desired him, that worshiped him, that had faith, because he put his love by his spirit into our hearts and made those hearts new. willfully sinful is who we are until God makes us new. And when we are made new, when God creates us anew, we can become willfully obedient. We talked about this Wednesday night how our duty and our pleasure in Christ become one. And it's no longer my duty. I'm no longer just seeking my own pleasure, but my duty to God and my pleasure become one in Christ. Now it is my pleasure to do my duty. It is my pleasure to serve my God because God changed our hearts by His grace, seeking seeking our own may be life according to our terms, but it is not life according to God. We were never created to live according to our terms. We were created solely for the glory of God. And this is what God wants us to understand. He also wants us to understand that in seeking His glory, we will experience the fullness of His joy and the fullness of His peace that has no end. It surpasses our understanding. It is full of glory and unspeakable, the Bible says, this joy that we find in Him. This is all possible, not because we're Israelites, but because God in His grace chose to make a difference between us. It's not that Israelites are better than Egyptians. That's why we are to never look at someone and compare ourselves with them. It's why we're not to look at someone and despise the way God works or blesses or moves in someone else's life and you are left wondering, God, why, why don't you do that for me? Why don't I get that, God? That is a heart that needs to be changed. When I find myself doing that, 
when I find myself looking at someone and thinking, God, why don't you do that for me? God, why, why God? Kind of like Moses, why God? When I find myself in that place, I know that my heart is not right. When I find myself despising what someone else has because I don't have it, I know right away my heart is not right and I must repent. It's what the Bible calls coveting. We could reduce that down to idolatry. I've just made an idol out of what someone else has and, and I want that. And if you don't think you're capable of that, don't underestimate your humanity. Because even though you may be a born-again believer, you may be a brand-new creation, you are still human. Your flesh is still sinful. Your mind is still being renewed. Your heart still remembers what it used to... Your mind remembers what your heart used to be like. And you're still prone to those things if we are not vigilant. But here's the good news. It's not going to be your vigilance. It's not going to be your ability to stand firm and resist that. It's going to be the grace of God. The question is, do you want to stand firm and resist that? Do you want to resist the devil? Do you want to submit yourself to God and resist the devil? If you do, he'll flee from you. Do you want to resist the temptation that comes at you, that tries to draw you away? If you want to, the Bible says God will make a way of escape for you, and you can find that escape. God has given to us a new heart that chooses to worship Him instead of some idol. A heart that seeks His life and His glory instead of our own. A heart that knows that we are far from perfect, but that He is exceedingly perfect and holy and full of grace and mercy. God didn't withhold His only begotten Son, but gave Him up for us while we were still sinners. He has given us all things in Christ. He is not withholding from His children. God is not withholding from you. Even if you might think that He is, He is not. And whatever you feel He is withholding, if He is, it is only because it is not for your good and is not for His glory. He's not withholding. He has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in Christ. And He has given it for His glory. One scripture before we get ready to come to the table. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 2-4. through four. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Having become partakers of the divine nature, how did you, and how did I become partakers of the divine nature? We did that by God's grace. We didn't do that by our work. We didn't do that by our striving. We did that because God chose to make a difference in your life 
He made you different, and He did that by grace. And in doing that, He has delivered you from the corruption that is in the world through lust. As we get ready to come to the table, I'll remind you that this table is to remind us. Paul says, as often as you come to this table, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you do it in remembrance of Him. You remember His death. You proclaim His death even until He comes again. God invites us to His table to remember that He has set us free by the death and the life of His Son. That He has made us different. He has made us different. And He's done so by His grace. Church, come to the table. Here's my charge to you, that you remember that we are Egyptians apart from His grace. That God has made a difference between us and the world by His grace alone, not by who we are or any difference we ourselves have made. God and His grace alone makes the difference, so know how much you have been forgiven. Not because of who you are, but because God is other than you. He is graceful. We are not. He is forgiving. We are not. He is love and joy and peace, and we have none except by His grace. Know that He loved you first, that He poured that love into your heart by His Holy Spirit, and He has given you a new heart, a heart that will choose to love Him, choose to worship Him, and choose to live for Him. Live your life, church, in pursuit of His glory, and find the fullness of His joy and peace in that pursuit. Do not live only for yourself or to yourself. Share His life with all you can. Seek first the kingdom and do the work of ministry to the building up of His church and the glory of His name. That is the privilege that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. May His grace and peace go with you. Let's sing our thanks.